Hello, and welcome to MedEd Soundbites, a new podcast series from your friendly SAEM Education Committee. My name is Dinah Wallen, and I'm the Director of Didactics at UCSF San Francisco General Hospital. I'm here today with Dr. Ryan Pedigo. Hi, Dr. Wallen. It's so great to be here with you. I'm Ryan Pedigo. I'm Associate Residency Program Director at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. We in the Education Committee heard a clear need from SAEM's membership for a resource to help all of you who find yourselves working with learners in the ED, but don't really know where to begin. We've all encountered amazing medical educators in our training and careers, and we've also all had not so amazing ones. The ones who made us feel stupid or too slow or like we were in the way. The emergency department environment offers a myriad of unique opportunities for clinical teaching, and the purpose of MedEd Soundbites is to cultivate strong clinical teaching skills in our listeners to take advantage of the awesome learning environment our clinical home provides. Yes, I remember being a chief resident and being expected to teach medical students and interns, but never had any formal training whatsoever in doing so. Now that I'm a bit more experienced, I cringe at how ineffective I was giving poor feedback, not properly evaluating the learner to understand how I can push them to the next level. Overall, just not great. MedEd Soundbites was designed with a goal of supporting all of you through that transition so you don't make the same mistakes I did. We did. Yeah, I guess the mistakes we probably all made. MedEd Soundbites will consist of five series. In series one, teaching in the ED, this is where we are right now. We'll give a broad overview of teaching in the ED. Series one consists of five episodes total, and they will be posted on the SAM website. Once we wrap up our overview in series one, in series two, we'll take a deeper dive into specific teaching techniques and strategies. In series three, we'll explore the different learner groups who end up in the ED, from medical students to nurses to more seasoned faculty, quote unquote, in desperate need of some learning themselves and how to meet their varied needs in the most efficient way. In series four, we'll be turning the lens back on ourselves and we'll discuss how to improve as an educator. Not that you'll need any improvement once you get that far with us. Just kidding. Yeah. And we use Rob Rogers' book, Practical Teaching in Emergency Medicine. We'll reference relevant chapters in the show notes. Feel free to borrow or purchase the book and follow along with us, although don't follow along if you're driving. Also, if you were just thinking, wow, I sure am tired of this lady's voice, we've got you covered. Not only do our host duos change with every episode, we'll also have guest hosts for each podcast, celebrities within the world of academic emergency medicine. Today, we are absolutely stoked to be joined by Dr. Mike Gisandi, a dear friend and a true inspiration for what an outstanding educator can look like. And now, without further ado, let's actually learn something. Let's start with our learners. We're working with adult learners in the ED, so not only is our setting physically different, from a classroom, and we'll get to that later, but our learners' brains also work differently. Yes, many of us have heard that term adult learner thrown around before, and there is some controversy in the med-ed world about specifics, but there are some general principles applicable to most of the learners you'll be working with in the ED. First off, adult learners seek their education because it's useful for them, whether for internal reasons like interest or external reasons like I have to pass a test or it's required for a job. If you asked a bunch of third graders to memorize the capitals of all 50 states, they would do it just because you asked them to. Adult learners are fundamentally different. As one of our accomplished educators in our department, Dr. Diane Birnbaumer likes to say, you can always assume adult learners have WIIFM tattooed on their forehead. What's in it for me? 
<laughs> if the learner is invested and motivated to learn and there's something in it for them, you will be more effective. <laughs> I love that. This gets us to a fundamental point. Make your teaching useful to your learner. Statements like, this will totally be on your boards, or I use this decision instrument constantly when I'm working, can go a long way. Yeah, this gets the idea that in contrast to children learning in school, which is subject-centered, adult learning is problem-centered. So we as the teachers need to illuminate the problem for our learners. Absolutely. Secondly, adult learners derive much of their very identity from their prior life experiences. So this will undoubtedly inform how they approach learning in the ED. Teachers then need to demonstrate appreciation and respect for their learners' previous experiences and wisdom and use this to inform their teaching. Along those lines, adult learners view their teachers more as facilitators than instructors, providing support and guidance as the learner solves problems on their own. For a few more words on these unique learners we're dealing with, Dr. Mike Gisanti. Welcome, Mike. Dean and Ryan, you are spot on. First, thanks for having me on the show. You're both outstanding educators, and I've been in each of your fan clubs for years, so this is really an honor to be with you both today. But as I said, no surprise, you're spot on. There's a lot of debate in medical education literature as to whether andragogy exists, andragogy being the techniques required to teach adults, as if those principles are somehow distinct from teaching children, which we refer to as pedagogy. So is there a real difference between kids and adults when it comes to learning? A true difference in pedagogy and andragogy? I know, I think it's tough to say. So instead of considering adult learners as to whether they exist or not, I say we should consider physician learners. And the most challenging of the physician learners to teach are attending physicians because their learning is highly dependent on needs and motivation. So there are some key principles when teaching physician learners. First, physician learners are pragmatists. They wanna learn something that has a real benefit to them. They're not gonna spend their time on the esoteric. They need to be interested in the material and that interest usually stems from a defined learning gap. Physician learners need a reason to spend their mental energy to learn. There must be relevance to the material, especially if the learning activity goes beyond just the usual teaching pearl on a shift. If a physician is going to use their non-clinical time to deeply learn something, the material has to be relevant to their practice. Physician learners want efficiency of learning. They want to spend the least amount of time to successfully address whatever learning need is identified. And lastly, physician learners want to be engaged. It takes a lot for us to break from our daily lives and focus intently on something. And that's much easier to do if the content is presented in an engaging way. As this is episode one of your new podcast, I think it's a great moment to be meta. Your podcast is going to cover practical teaching skills. The material on your podcast will be highly relevant to our daily expectations to be great teachers. Your podcast will be an efficient use of our time. We can listen on our way to work or at the gym. And finally, you two are crazy engaging. A much better way to learn this material than reading a dry journal article. So practicing what you preach, this new SAM MedEd Soundbites will be practical, relevant, efficient, and engaging. So well done. I'm going to let you get back to the show, but I do want to acknowledge one of my favorite concepts in medical education, again, because this is episode one, the introductory episode. And that concept is adaptive expertise, which is the goal of medical education. It is the goal, adaptive expertise. And we rarely talk about this concept, yet it's fundamental and it has to be included in episode one. Adaptive expertise is the use of foundational knowledge to efficiently and effectively manage a common problem that you see every day, that's called application, and to use your foundational knowledge to also manage the never-before-seen case or the unusual case that's called integration. 
So adaptive expertise is the perfect goal for medical education and emergency medicine. We have to be prepared for unusual or never before seen cases, just like we prepare for the expected ones. So let me give you an example. Let's take an example of arrhythmias. You build your foundational knowledge of heart anatomy, cardiac pathophysiology, ECG interpretation, cardiac pharmacology, and you use all that foundational knowledge to manage atrial fibrillation on every ED shift. Sometimes AFib is fast, sometimes it's slow, sometimes there's hypotension, sometimes there's hypertension, but it's still AFib, it's still common, and you know how to deal with it. But then you see your first Wellens or your first Brugada, and you have to call upon your foundational knowledge to solve that never before seen problem. So as we think about becoming better teachers, I think you need to think about what truly needs to be taught. We need to build our trainees' foundational knowledge. We need to help them learn to apply that knowledge to variations of common clinical conditions. And we need to help prepare them to integrate their knowledge to solve uncommon problems. All right, with that, I'm gonna turn it back over to you both, I promise. And I can't wait to become a regular listener of this new SAEM MedEd Soundbites podcast. Again, guys, thank you for having me on the show. Mind blown. Love these Jasandiisms. Thanks so much, Mike. Wow. There's so much to think about there. Yes. So rather than thinking about adult learners generally, we really ought to think about physician learners specifically. Yes. Physician learners are not only the focus of our discussion today, but also our listeners. And that idea of adaptive expertise Yeah, with that description, Dr. Jazandi really named and put into words what we're all doing every day. So fascinating. We have discussed the learners themselves, but what about our environment in the ED? The ED sure is a great place to learn, full of varied pathology, procedures, drama. All of these things are true and do make the ED a potentially awesome learning environment. But these very same things can make our home a less than comfortable place for many learners. There are innumerable distractions, limited dedicated time for teaching, limited physical space and privacy, not to mention a variety of learners at different levels and from different specialties. How can we possibly overcome all of that? That's where this podcast series comes in. And we hope that on your commute to work, while you're cleaning your home or even exercising, that we can give you some high yield pearls to make your next teaching shift more rewarding for you, your learners, and your team. Teachers need methods that are efficient and effective. Not unlike the clinical practice of emergency medicine, we can increase our efficiency and effectiveness with advanced preparation. By contemplating these strategies ahead of time, then being intentional with on-shift behavior, we can capitalize on the great potential benefits of our clinical home. The emergency department's physical environment is mildly chaotic at best and complete mayhem at worst, and we have minimal control over this. The interpersonal element, however, we can absolutely control. In a framework I learned from Dr. Skeff and Stratus at Stanford, this is referred to as the learning climate. Simply put, if learners see that you're enthusiastic about the subject, enthusiastic about them, you will be a more effective teacher, they will be more receptive. Some simple discrete behaviors in this domain would be, and this might sound really silly and obvious to some of you, always use their name, Truly listen to your learners and allow them to feel comfortable, maybe even admitting your own errors or the limitations of the ED space. Nothing shuts down a teaching session faster than not knowing someone's name and just calling people, hey, medical student. They're going to know that you're not that interested. And admitting the many limitations in our setting can diffuse stress, like saying, hey, I know we just walked out of the recess room, so I don't expect you to have everything figured out yet, but dot, 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 
Or I made the same mistake as an intern and how I learned dot, dot, dot. Yes. Once this relationship has been established, then you can easily integrate teaching into the patient care activities you're already doing by being observant and intentional. This requires little thought or planning for you and yet is incredibly beneficial to the learner. Being observant is critically important. There are fundamentally two ways you can evaluate a learner. You can watch them do something or you can ask them a question. It's shocking how infrequently we do the former. We do the latter all the time. Ask yourself as a listener listening to this podcast right now, when is the last time you watched a medical student, intern, or resident do a physical exam or consent a patient for a procedure? We usually base our judgments of competency based on the latter, asking them questions, but the importance of observation of our learners cannot be overstated. For more junior learners who might be observing a procedure or encounter themselves, direct their observation to a specific thing. Calling attention to what you want them to observe is so important because what the learner believes is important for them to observe and what you intend for them to get out of the session may be completely different things. Just saying, hey, Jane, since you're the sub-intern on this rotation and just started, watch the senior run this resuscitation. That's unlikely to be beneficial. It's too high inference, too vague. What specifically do they need to watch? I love that. An example I often use with junior medical students entering a trauma is to say, I want you to time how long it takes the resident to get through their primary survey. So listen very closely. This gives the learner something specific to observe and easily leads us into a concise discussion about the primary survey once the resuscitation has concluded. That last sentence is so critical where you have a discussion afterwards. Otherwise, what the learner believes they should have gotten out of the session and what you believe they should have gotten out of the session is never explored. Debriefing what they observed and using that as a launch pad for a discussion can be very valuable. What's another quick low budget tip you'd add? Well, this sounds obvious, but I'll say it anyway. Try to incorporate a quick teaching point with every case presentation, every time you review test results, and during sign out. Simply asking why or what else can encourage a bi-directional flow of information and organically create a teachable moment. Yeah, so good. And the creator of these teachable moments doesn't always have to be you. You can enlist others. You have senior residents, rotators, nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, social workers. So many amazing individuals who make the ED functional also have so much to add and teach learners. You can overtly acknowledge this at the start of the shift, too, so it doesn't seem like a cop-out. It's really busy today, so we are all going to learn from each other. And just like role modeling and enlisting other team members can be helpful when it's especially busy, effective teachers also prepare for rare downtime with a repository of teaching resources. This might be mock codes, tabletop case discussions, short lectures like a PowerPoint or a Chalk Talk, or an easily accessible file of interesting ECGs or radiology findings. I love those ideas. I also make heavy use of MedEd Portal. During downtime, I'll ask learners for a general theme or organ system, then search right then and there for a relevant case that we can talk through. This takes me less than five minutes, but offers learners a fun, pre-prepared, peer-reviewed opportunity. I haven't done that, but maybe I'll give it a shot myself on the next shift. Another strategy is to assign your learners some independent study, but you really need to be specific about goals for this study, and it really needs to be informed by your direct evaluation of them to understand what they need. If they just saw a patient with a pulmonary embolism and you don't have time to teach because there's a recess coming in, you say, hey, go read about PE, 
that is less effective. In your evaluation, you hopefully listened intently, ask probing questions, understand where they are, where they have a good understanding and where they don't. If they nailed the history, the exam, and the differential, but really faltered and didn't know how to risk stratify patients after the diagnosis was made, you can guide them to be specific in their learning to address that area of growth for the learner. Yes. I can see how a learner might feel dismissed or in the way when they're sent off on a vague journey of self-exploration, but with clear guidance and direction, they feel engaged and safe to learn. Exactly right. And you can then close the loop with them later to make sure that they got understanding from their self-study. So we're going to wrap up this first episode by introducing one potential approach to receiving presentations and teaching called the One Minute Preceptor, which is a set of five micro skills. We'll cover bedside teaching in more detail in episode two, but this is a general overview, and this is something that you should try on your very next shift. You don't have to use all five micro skills every single time, but in many cases, it's helpful to incorporate at least some of these five micro skills into each and every presentation you receive. The first micro skill is to get a commitment on anything. This part is critically important because if you offer up your plan before they commit to theirs, you'll never know if your plan and theirs were congruent. You can adjust this to your level of learner, whether the second year medical student is committing to naming what lung sounds they heard, or your senior resident commits to discharging a patient with intermediate risk chest pain, Getting your learner to commit to something about their assessment and plan sets you up for micro skill two, probe for supporting evidence. Here you ask the learner why they decided what they did. They made a commitment and you need to know why. This helps you understand their thought process and their baseline knowledge. Without this, you won't understand why they came to their conclusion. So therefore you won't really know how to guide them to get better. After listening to the learner explain their logic, then comes micro skill three, which is teaching general rules. For instance, elderly patients presenting to the ED with abdominal pain have a high mortality, so I have a low threshold to obtain labs and imaging. Then, once you've shared a general rule, you close with micro skills four and five. Reinforce what was done well and correct errors. This specific, relevant, and timely feedback will help this newly acquired knowledge stick. We'll have a much deeper dive on feedback later, but for now, these micro skills four and five are really about giving feedback to the learner, and we should have a brief discussion on what makes this more effective or less effective. Feedback, one, should be timely, so the event is fresh in everyone's mind. Yeah, it's never effective to say, hey, remember that case from last month? That didn't go well, did it? Exactly. And two, it should be given by the person who directly observed the encounter themselves and actually has a basis to give feedback. That's you. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, hey, can you give resident X or medical student Y feedback about this when I never even saw the interaction myself? That is the worst. Completely agree. You absolutely have to have a valid observation to be able to give feedback. And lastly, feedback should be as specific and as low inference as possible. What I mean by low inference is that what the person giving the feedback intends to have happen and what the learner receiving the feedback understands should happen is the same. For instance, if I said, wow, Dr. Wallen, you really annoyed that consultant. Is that feedback? How rude. But yeah, I guess technically that is feedback. Yes, but it's non-specific, very high inference, and therefore is less effective feedback. What I would want you to do next time and what you think you should do next time to not annoy the consultant, it's too vague. 
However, if I said, Dr. Wallen, I noticed that you interrupted the consultant multiple times when she was trying to speak, and that made her upset and frustrated. In the ED for an emergent consult, my adrenaline's always rushing, and I find myself doing the same thing, and I have to remind myself to consciously take a deep breath and slow down. Did you notice that occurring? That's lower inference. I remarked on a specific observation. I didn't make a comment about them as a person. I just, I'm commenting on an observation. I offered an alternative behavior, admitted that I have the same problem, and also asked for an open dialogue about the feedback to see if they saw the event differently. Wow. That is a much more effective strategy. So specific and somehow feels less personal. If I received that feedback, I'd know exactly what to reflect on and how to change my behavior. Well, I think that's the end of our content for session one of series one of MedEd Soundbites, Teaching in the ED. We covered so much today. We sure did. We focused today on the fundamentals of teaching in the ED. First, we talked about adult learners and the unique learning environment of the ED. My major takeaways were really to mentally prepare ahead of time, always be on the lookout for learning opportunities and bringing in other team members to help teach. Developing a positive learning climate where you show interest in the learners, even something as simple as using their names, admitting your own limitations and the limitations of our setting and showing enthusiasm for the topic and learner really goes a long way to making your teaching sessions more effective. We talked about low effort strategies like directed observation and integrating one teaching point into predictable moments like sign out and patient presentations. We also learned so much from our guest host, Dr. Mike Jazandi, thinking about what differentiates our physician learners from the generic adult learner and adapting our teaching to best meet their needs, a la MedEd Soundbites. We also got our minds blown by the concept of adaptive expertise, our overall purpose and goal when we're teaching anyone in the ED. Let's get you that foundational knowledge and help you see all the settings in which you can apply and integrate it. So cool. And we close by discussing the five micro skills included in the one minute preceptor, something you can use on your very next shift. Number one, get a commitment. Once your learner has committed, then micro skill two, probe for supporting evidence. After you've had that discussion, micro skill three, teach general rules. Then after you've imparted some wisdom, it's time for feedback in micro skills four and five. Reinforce what was done well and correct errors. Nailed it. Well, team, thanks so much for sticking with us. And thanks to our guest host, Dr. Jazandi, for sharing his wisdom with us. We hope you enjoyed yourselves as much as we did. Please check out the SAM website for session two of Teaching in the ED, in which Drs. Ashley Ivkovich and Julie Taunt are going to do a deeper dive into bedside teaching and are also going to cover teaching procedures. Until next time, Dr. Ryan Pedigo and Dr. Dinah Wallen sounding off. 